After the first anniversary of the full-scale war, a febrile and impatient media is asking the question, when will the war end with ever greater frequency? There are many reasons for this. Of course, of concern for the loss of life, the destruction and the economic pain, but also war fatigue, misunderstanding, the competence, motivations and actions, and a general lack of historical perspective, leading them to misunderstand the mechanics and practice of warfare. My guest this week is Hein Gomans, an expert in war termination theory. In other words, how wars end. He explains that it's going to take a lot more dying and destruction before both sides prepared to make a deal or even start defining what a deal could look like. So is there any clear end to this war in sight or are the two sides too far apart with radically different objectives? Welcome to Silicon Curtain. All our content is also available on popular podcast platforms like Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Please like and subscribe to help new people find our fantastic speakers. And of course, if you enjoy the content, consider supporting us by becoming a patron. Ein Gomans is a professor at the University of Rochester in the United States. His academic specialism is war termination theory. Ein is a specialist in the politics of war, war termination, and territorial disputes. His first book, War and Punishment, published in 2000, asks what keeps wars going and what makes them stop, and focuses on the role of leaders in war termination, with an empirical focus on World War I. His second book, Leaders and International Conflict, 2011, focuses on the role of leaders in war initiation, a very relevant area of study in the context of the Ukrainian war. Goman's publications have appeared in the American Political Science Review, the American Journal of Political Science, the Journal of Politics, and many other publications. Goman's has discussed his work on war termination in the context of the war in Ukraine in articles in The New Yorker and The Money Cage, as well as in international media, such as the BBC's The Inquiry Programme, Cable News, CBC, Euronews, CNN Portugal, France 24, and many other outlets, as well as in the print media, such as the Financial Times, Der Spiegel, and Die Zeit. And we will, of course, put some links to these books and other articles and interviews that you may find of great interest. So when we look at the Ukraine war, uh, and we look at the media, who of course are often very impatient. They don't understand, you know, the historical background of, well, Russia, Russian imperialism, but also they don't have that big understanding of, of, of that you've got, which is, you know, how wars of the past uh, tend to tend to start and how they end, and that sort of bell curve or probability of whether they're going to be a short or a, a longer war. Right. Um, uh, so why, why do you think the sort of, you know, the media are constantly asking this question, when will the war end? Do you think it's a valid question at this point? It's a great question. And I'm very glad you opened with that, Jonathan. So, so there is this noble intent behind it because people see the suffering and the death and the destruction. And they think it's awful, awful, awful. And the media, of course, has the shots of the suffering and the death and the stories because, you know, it grips us, you know. It's one of the reasons why we study war. But I think it's fundamental to understand that that suffering and those costs actually have a purpose. They actually can tell us things that we cannot tell without war. We can, you know, we learn from the 
suffering, how much a country is willing to suffer. We learn who is stronger and who is weaker. And so what I think the media does is they focus on the cost with complete lack of understanding that this this has a, this has a kind of purpose. I mean, war provides information. You learn things you cannot learn any other way. And the cost and the death is an essential part of it. It is awful, but you know that's war. Yeah, Klaus would said, right? War is the admixture is the continuation of politics with the admixture of other means. Yes, because you want to you know, each one each side wants to get a better deal and needs to figure out who is right. And if we compare the mythologies of war, because of course people don't just go to war because they're told. Well, actually, a lot of people do go because they're told, but in their heads they'll have a mythology that for them sort of justifies going along with authority. Um, and, you know, Russia, Ukraine, Britain saying World War One. I, I mean, it's not that different in that we all have a mythology, but the mythologies that are in Russians' heads, I believe, are very different to the narratives or stories that Ukrainians are, are telling themselves. Um, does the, the huge gulf or difference between these sort of reasons for going to fight for your country does that potentially make uh, you know a deal to end the war much more difficult? This is a great question. I mean, this is a great question, and I'm and one I'm trying to have been trying to struggle with for the last 10, 15 years in a in a different research, research context. Um, so let me let me paraphrase you know a little bit maybe for the audience. The fundamental problem that Jonathan is pointing out is that. Um, you can't just send people to the front based on fear, uh, because the question is, who is the guy who stands behind the guy with the gun who stands behind with this guy? You know, there has to be some sense of voluntary contribution. At least some parts of society have to have to go have to stand behind this. Uh, and there is a very clear notion, as you rightly point out, in Ukraine, what these people are stand for. And there's much more coercion in uh, in Russia, and there's still a notion of some kind of maybe greater greater Russia or some kind of falsified history that they believe in. Um, yes, I honestly do believe that these can play a big um, big role um, in changing the terms of settlements and changing the expectations of what the outcome of war will look like. Uh, the Ukrainians, in my opinion, rightly believe that if they give up, then that what's going to happen to them is what happens at other kind of places at Mariupol and other places where there have been you know, horrendous crimes against humanity against Ukrainians. So they say like, okay, you know, if we fight, we might die, but if we settle now, we're going to die earlier and and maybe even a worse death. Um, there's something fundamentally different about the logic and the and the um, and the willingness to fight with the Russians. And let me get, I mean, I'm really glad you you raised this question because there's lots of really interesting details and and, and facets to this. So one of the fundamental problems is there is this notion of. Russian Mir, I mean, you probably know the terms better than I do, Novorossiya, but the notion that, that Ukraine is a part of Russia and has always been, which has fundamental problems for the termination of this war, because for the Russians to make a deal that sticks and that the people accept basically may mean uh, a request that the Russian people change their fundamental identity. What does it mean to be Russian? And to change that, I mean... I don't think that is possible in a war like this. I mean, that you, know, that you need a much bigger war where, where it's, you know, maybe you go uh, uh, fight much harder and much more is at stake. So there is this there is this notion of this, what we were fighting for among the Russians. A lot of people are more and more saying like, you know, 
what is this? We're fighting against brothers and we don't understand what's going on here. And they're not particularly willing to say like, oh, let's kill these Ukrainians who are supposedly our brothers. So that's a good thing. But on the bad thing, acknowledging that Ukrainians are not your brothers in order to, uh, which is what the Ukrainians are saying, is going to be incredibly difficult for Russia and Russian society, I believe. I mean, I wonder what you think about that. Can the Russians, can, can, can Putin say like, oh, we were uh, wrong all along. The Ukrainians were not our brothers, and we you know, so change your mind about what it means to be Russian. Putin can't, for sure, and not just because I think it's a, an ideological position or a convenient position politically. I think he genuinely um, does not see the Ukrainians as having agency, uh, and yeah. where they oppose Russian authority, I think he sees it almost as if they've been infected by a, a western virus or ideas that are alien to uh you know to to, to the russian tradition um but and, it's in a sense it means you're know, chopping off your arm i mean and, and you know in your cultural your identity arm and, and to ask that you know i mean that would make russia uh, put in the betrayer of of russia of the maybe even the Orthodox Church and stuff like that. It's just the stakes, you know, when you start talking about are coming very high for Russia as well. Normally, if you think in this context, oh, it's easy for Ukraine. What's at stake is the survival as a nation. That's very high. But we think the Ukrainians will never ask for a square inch of uh, of the pre ninety nine border of, of Russia. They're never going to, you know, um, uh, you know. So there's a limit to their upper war aims. But if we start talking about identity things, then maybe the ball of wax gets even bigger and you know more 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 complicated. So it's a so, really interesting and, question. And that that Sorry. that question of imperial identity. I mean, I know you've researched World War One, and I think World War One is fascinating, isn't it? Because that uh, that finished off a great many empires, including the Tsarist Empire, but also uh, you know German imperial ambitions in that sort of classic nineteenth century sense were finished off there, yeah. as well as their you know, ruling aristocratic elite, you know, lost power uh, and, uh, you know, their czar, as it were, the Kaiser. Um, and, and and Russia seems to be sort of two centuries. Um, this process seems to be unfolding in Russia sort of one and a half to two centuries later than, than everybody else, which is not unusual, I think, for Russian history to be a little bit behind. Um, but as you say, that that acceptance of the decline of empire does not seem to be something that the russians generally have grappled with um and even those who haven't really thought about it uh would probably be sort of instinctively opposed to it whereas ukrainian resistance is not built on a imperial identity or the desire to expand its territory it's built on more of a soft nationalism and um, something more akin i think to say scottish uh, nationalism, which isn't a, uh, the English might say something different, but it's not an aggressive uh, nationalism of conquest. Yeah, and more civic nationalism versus some kind of notion of ethnic nationalism distinction that's often made. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, I mean, the question you raise in my thinking about it, I mean, I'm putting it into the framework that how I think about war and, you know, and, and what are the stakes and how are they formulated. Um, is one additional complicating factor in this war, one additional factor that may probably make it last longer, yet and makes it harder to settle. Um, because this problem, so we tend to think about conflicts that they end typically in negotiated settlements. And that's true. There's very few that end on unconditional surrender, not even the War of the Pacific, not even the First World War. Um, you know, you make some kind of compromise. 
But the problem with something like identity and these kind of things is that they're almost indivisible. You can't say I give a little bit of my identity. You can say I can give you a little bit of territory. I can give you additional money. I can give you a set concessions. But you know, this thing is almost you know is almost indivisible, um, which has a particular kind of uh, meaning in, in the story of, of, of war. Um, so it's it's you know it's and it's closely tied with Putin's notion of this. Russian Empire, whether it's the Tsarist or the Communists that he wants to reconstitute, but it also has consequences, of course, for the ethnic republics. You know, the people in these in, the, in these in these in these republics who are feeling like, wait a minute, we are dying by the tens of thousands for suppo supposedly greater Russia, whereas the Russians themselves in Saint Peter's and Moscow are not fighting. I mean, that's a consideration that I actually do take seriously. That there is some, could be some unrest there, but we'll see what happens. Mm -hmm. And in your experience, when you've analysed sort of wars over the last of you know couple of hundred years, if they're based on say um, I'm going to say geopolitics, but if they're based on uh, one would also call it sort of rational uh, basis, um, which is material, territories, resources, economics, is there a point at which the leadership that initiated that war tend to think, well, the benefits of 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 winning? Are, are now surpassed by the sort of losses and that drives people to make a peace deal. Is there a rational consideration? Because it seems to me that Putin is far beyond that rational reckoning. You know, there's no, uh, if you look at sort of classic economic terms, you know, what they're losing both in the short, medium and long term far outweighs any potential material gain from, from the offensives. Yeah, so we so yes, uh, but we don't think of it in terms of like uh, um, losses of benefits for one side. We tend to think of war as uh, um, as that that the costliness of war is something inherent. So this is you know this my former advisor at, at Chicago's now at Stanford, James Fearon, is very very influential in the study of war, who says like the fundamental nature of war is that it's costly, which is a you know really big problem because. Let's say you and I fight a war, and after the war, we decide you get 75% of the ter territory and I get 25%. Um, both of us, not just one, both of us would have been better off if we had made a deal without uh, the cost of war, because there would have been just more territory. And and this leads to a fundamental cause of war, term, uh, war and war termination is that you may have some ideas that your generals are particularly good, your plans are good, your military is great. Ukrainian army is terrible, all these kinds of NATO won't support, all these expectations. And then you fight and you learn. And once both sides more or less agree on what the outcome of the war is going to be, you would expect that both sides, both sides, not just one side said, like, eh, you know, we're not really going to change much about the situation because we agree on what the outcome is going to be, and just more cost is not good. And then you can come to the bargaining table and start making uh, making a deal. That's one way fundamental of thinking. But I mean, I always like to to tell my students this example of the First World War, that on 17 November 1914, you know, four years minus a week before the war ended, the German leadership, the Chancellor Beckmann Hollweg, Chief of Staff Falkenhayn, I refer to him as uh, William the Last, you know, all agreed in the Crown Council that Germany couldn't win you know, against the current coalition. But they decided to keep on fighting because they knew that the alternative to, you know, um, Keep on fighting was a peace deal, which would be seen as a loss by the people back home and lead to the social revolution that they wanted to avoid. So that this is called this 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 mechanism where people keep fighting even though they're losing is known as gambling for resurrection. 
And you know, there is there's extensive debate about whether Putin is doing this at the moment right now because it's not irrational. It's like you know, he is not paying the cost of the war, other people. So for him, the cost of the war really don't matter that much. What matters for him is if he stays in office, because if he's out of office, he's dead. Now there is a there is a real kind of mix of of, of opinion about this you know, among you know, some of my friends who study war termination, particularly a good friend at, at California, Branislav Slanchev, you know, who says like, well. Putin built up his repressive apparatus at the moment, strong enough that he can go home, says we have the four provinces of Zaporizhia, Yakhazon, and Luhansk, Donetsk, what a glorious victory for the Russian arms, and he can sell it as a victory to the people because he built up the repressive apparatus. Um, and I am, it's a very good argument. Um, the one reason why I push back on that is that Okay, I believe that's true, but the question then becomes, why did he build up the repressive apparatus so much? And the reason must be because he was afraid of getting overthrown and getting killed. So there is still this uncertainty there, which it looks irrational, perhaps on one perspective, but from Putin's personal perspective and the regime's perspective, it's completely rational. And it's interesting, isn't it, the way this sort of escalation has gone. I don't mean escalation as it's used in propaganda, NATO escalation, etc., but the way Russia has escalated. I mean, Putin has launched a series of wars throughout his tenure, but this is perhaps the most risky adventure. Uh, normally, he's far more reserved. He's probably thinking yeah. much more like a spy, a real economy of force taking people by surprise, doing unexpected things. Um, and there did seem to be strategic objectives to 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 most of them. So taking Crimea, obviously extremely important, you know, access to the Black Sea. You can see that there's some kind of, you know, economical uh, military objective there. Donbass, you know, if we strip away the sort of propagandist myths that Russians were being sort of crucified and repressed and the Russian land, which is all absolute nonsense. Um, but the strategic reason is quite clear, and that is if you create turmoil and a state of war on the territory of your neighbor, then it can't join the EU, it can't join NATO, you turn it into a, you know, um, a sort of chaotic buffer zone. Um, so that all seems sort of appalling, but rational up to a point. Yeah, what me, happened me, in February last year seems out of character. Well, I mean, so let me ask you a question because maybe you know better than I do on this. I have some feelings, but what Russia is he trying to recreate? Is it the Tsarist one or the Soviet one? Do you have uh, any kind of feeling? Neither. I think it's a, a sort of postmodern invented mishmash of them. Uh, Sphere of influence and, you know, annex here and there, have chaos and some buffers. Yeah, maybe well be. So, so my former advisor, you know, so my first advice, one advice I just talked to you about was Jim Ferron, who is a you know, very big shot. My other advisor was John Mershammer, um, who has a take on the war that I completely disagree with. I'll just let's say that for the record. But there is an argument, you know, to be made um, that Putin saw the writing on the wall, you know, at least twice or three times NATO had said in the future, Ukraine will become part of NATO. And we can even leave that aside. But Ukraine will join the EU and get stronger and more independent. And if you can see that coming five, ten years in the future, that in the future Ukraine will be in a better, stronger position, um, 
and therefore be able to renegotiate any terms of a deal with 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 Russia, with Putin himself about extent of Russian control, Russian influence, you know, a, a whole host of issues that are important for policy and personal reasons for Putin. Then you could see, like, okay, I can see this happening in the in the future. I'd better stop it now. And, and I think there is some logic of that perhaps going on with with, with Putin because he, you know, as you as you surely know, he reiterates in his in his speeches, you know, um, and that that is a, I mean, it's horrible, but it is a relatively rationalist stance to say like, the future, you know, I better off fight now rather than the future, and it doesn't have to be for for total control or stuff like that. Although he seems to be wanted in Ukraine, it's like. The terms of any deal I can get in the future are worse than if I fight now, so I do it now. And that may be because he's getting older, maybe for other things. You know, um, it's surprising. Also, I mean, I, I, it makes me think about the about the Falklands War of 1982. If only Galtieri and the admirals had waited six months, um, perhaps Thatch would have lost the election, and the last uh, aircraft carrier of the Brits would have been uh, uh, would have been decommissioned. If only Putin had waited two years, and perhaps there had been another, you know, uh, Republican president, you know, the situation would be very different. It is a puzzle why he does it now. It's not the optimal time. I would agree with you. It's 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 not. Although perhaps from his perspective, he might have thought he might have been planning to do this. Obviously, two years prior to when he did. Oh, no, the, did, did you because of COVID? Oh, ah. Did when Trump was still, uh, you know, busy dismantling the NATO relationship, I mean, he might have done it then. But you know, well, he... wait a minute. there wasn't there was an article that came out just now that Putin said, um, "I wish we could have done it in 2014, but we weren't ready." So I've been preparing since 2014. Yes, and that that that's an interesting point as well. Again, I think that's a misunderstanding because clearly the Ukrainian army in 2014 was was ramshackle and poorly equipped. Um, yes. So by 2016, maybe it would have been a bit stronger, but really not uh, as strong as it was after eight years of, of, of warfare and testing at the hands of the Russians. And I think this is where perhaps his failings as a leader came in, because he doesn't give the Ukrainians agency. He perhaps wouldn't have expected them to coalesce and improve and learn and so on. He would have thought yes. he's fighting the same enemy previously. But I mean, the, the, the question I'd love to put to you is you've got Mearsheimer, uh, and you've got Kissinger, and you've got these big geopolitical points of view on one side, and then you've got, I guess, my position, which is on the other, which this is much more of a local problem. This is a problem of um, the lack of inheritance mechanisms within the Russian political system. There's no way to pass power on to, to somebody else. Um, in fact, there's never been democratic transition of power in, in Russian history, except perhaps Gorbachev. But then that's not democratic. That was forced upon yeah. him. Um, but there's there's two. So it's almost like you've got the, the microscopic and the macroscopic interpretations. Um, I tend towards this being far more of a local issue. But then, you know, Russia also has global imperial ambitions as well, which are inherited from the Soviet Union from the idea of projecting an ideology onto the world. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that, that Mearsheimer and Kissinger are still thinking of Putin as a statesman, still thinking of Russia as a ideologically driven superpower, whereas the microscopic interpretation says, no, he's a mafia warlord yeah. and he's simply protecting his booty, simply protecting his, you know, um, 
little kingdom and that that almost takes it back to muscovy's beginnings as a as a fortress as a you know an aggressive um highly aggressive genocidal power well you put a lot of things on the plate that i want to discuss right i particularly like the example of the mafia somewhat early in the war somebody said russia is a gas station with a mafia boss right i love that analogy but i agree with you that it's a local war because the question that neither Mersheimer or so I gave you an argument for could rationally explain what Putin did, right? But I agree with you that it's a local war because neither neither Mersheimer nor Kissinger ever asks why did Ukraine um, not accept Russia's terms? And you know the reason was not that they expected NATO support because NATO gave not support, no support, and NATO did not want to give weapons because they thought were you know that Ukraine would be uh, would be defeated and the weapons would be taken by the Russians. So. You know, the, the Ukrainians thought we are stronger than the, than, the, than than Russia thinks. And they were right. Right. So this is a local story. This is a miscalculation of the strength of uh, of Russia and Ukraine proper. The argument that you raised about the you know, succession, I think, is fundamentally important. I mean, um, so you may recall that Saddam Hussein uh, at some time got an offer to uh, to leave Iraq uh, peacefully and go to Dubai and get five billion dollars. But he couldn't accept it because, you know, in Dubai, he would be at the mercy of the security forces of Dubai. They might not always be stable. And Putin cannot do that either. I mean, there's a fascinating book written by Daniel Primaric on um, international justice. He calls it the justice dilemma, which shows that a lot of these leaders now actually can pers get persecuted. Um, in, in that context, it's very interesting to see what the ICC has done with yeah, indicting uh, Putin. But the, the, so Putin... Um, has no more option of an exile or because, you know, even flying abroad because he can be brought to the Hague. Perhaps a little tangent here for a moment, if you will let me. Perhaps more interesting than the indictment of Putin is the indictment of Maria Lebova, Belova because she's a mid-level bureaucrat. So, and now she's locked in, right? So a lot of the mid-level bureaucrats who have been involved more or less in the war crimes or other kind of terrible things are locked in and know that if Putin goes, they're probably likely to end the Hague. So these guys on the one hand are locked in in support for Putin, which is bad. But on the other hand, a lot of people who are going to be asked in the future, hey, do this because it's good for Russia, might actually say like, oh, you know what? This risks an ICC indictment and I'm not going to do it. So it has both the deterrent effect and the locked in effect. And, and Lavova Belova is more important than that than Putin because Putin was going to be all in. Uh, uh, She's thin over. end of the wedge, isn't she? There are thousands and thousands yes. of people. Yes, and it may in fact affect their incentives. I think you know the ICC indictment won't affect what Putin does, but it may affect these thousands of uh, nomenclatura. Or are there still nomenclatura, or what are they called now? Apparatchiks or you know Siloviki. There are lots of terms. Oh yeah, there? oh yeah, those guys. Yeah, oh yeah, those yeah those guys. Um, but <laughs> I mean, the succession thing that you point out is really fundamental because, um, because what is partially the alternative to Putin? We have to think of that Putin did something that Hitler did and that Arafat did. They set up competing security organizations so that none of them could coup against him. So if one of the security organizations wanted to coup against Putin, one of the other ones would always intervene on behalf of Putin or something like that. And, and, you know, and I, I think that's going on still. He set it up like that to a certain degree uh, in, in Russia. So who is the alternative and how can he be removed from office? It's just, I mean, well, there are lots of people. Systematically um, ensured that 
nobody gets the limelight and that those who do get significant coverage like Zhirinovsky, like uh, Solovyov and others, you know, they've ensured that those characters are really unelectable clowns. Uh, so they can they can function within a, that certain role, um, but they can't step outside of that role. And I think that's one of the problems with the Navalny. He was, I think many liberals believe he was given a role and the role was, um, you know, ethno-nationalist, sort of uh, fairly extreme, but, but articulate, um, perhaps next generation Zhirinovsky, less clownish, etc. And he broke out of that role. He decided he wanted to go in a different direction and become not a, a puppet oppositionist, but an independent one. And it's it's the minute you stop playing according to the framework of your script, um, I think uh, the... Um, you know the 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 oligarch whose uh, name Khodorkovsky. Uh, uh, similarly, you know, um, even more so, stepped out of the persona that was, you know, defined or allowed to him to become uh, an active political element, and that's not allowed. Same with Boris Nemtsov. It's the cannot be an independent agent. Therefore, there's no successor because Putin has not allowed one to emerge. But I agree. I mean, this is what I see as well. But what you also see is these competing security organizations having a nasty fight at the moment, right? I mean, there was this interview of uh, no, there's this intercepted phone call between this 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 one billionaire and Prigozhin. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's quite, you know, if it's real, it's quite telling. Um, so there is this nasty fight, and what is going to happen when these guys keep fighting each other? I don't know. I mean, I really do not know. I'm not expert enough in Kremlin politics to really deeply understand what the what the logic of the situation is and who can quote unquote win and who can quote who will lose. Well, that 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 for me that's not so surprising or not so unusual because even though people might have got used to um, these simmering tensions taking place behind closed doors in the '90s, they were you know on the streets with uh you know warlords and yeah. sylvia kian people basically you know rubbing each other out on a daily basis in these turf wars you know um one oligarch or businessman would essentially hire ministry of interior troops and you'd have these videos of you know 2030 black clad armored shock troops you know invading someone's business at the behest of a particular oligarch or apparatchik and this happened all the time wow. um so that that sort of stuff probably could be tolerated to a certain level i guess um but what, what it means is means that the the armed forces this is probably the most shocking thing that any of us learned the armed armed forces will remain fundamentally corrupt, right, and therefore not able to come up to kind of levels of of the West. I mean, the big change that might happen that I foresee is when the planes come, because the planes will come. If they're tanks, then the planes come, and the reason is that uh, you need them for combined arms warfare, and NATO is good at it, and Russia cannot do it, and when the Ukrainians actually get to implement combined arm uh, arms offenses then you can see a fundamental change in, in on the battlefield. By the way, I do not expect that to happen this year or not even in September. It may take another year. Um, but that will be a game changer because the Russians cannot, cannot withstand it. And hopefully in that time, the West has you know uh, started picking up production of ammunition, shells and all that stuff. Um, whereas now, the, uh, the, you know, and they're getting more and more modern. Whether I'm sure, as you know, the Russians are getting T-55s from... 
know, from old stocks and old, old tanks and old machinery. Um, and my opinion is that the war partially goes on because both sides haven't agreed yet on what the outcome of the war will be. And one fundamental reason is that Putin thinks he can wait out the West. And um, there are some people among the Republicans in the United States, among the extreme right and extreme left in Germany, right, who want to push towards negotiations. In my opinion, that is very, uh, very dangerous because it, it actually really prolongs the war and causes more death because it reinforces Putin's belief that he can ride it out. Um, that's a that's a scary thing for me. And so many questions emerge from that. And one that I'm interested in, because a couple of the people I've spoken to uh, on the sort of military expert side uh, have suggested this is this is a, highly immoral, but it is a well-known strategy. And that is to drip feed armaments to Ukraine so that they bleed out the Russian military. So rather than providing everything at once, rather than being a logistical or political or economic wow. challenge, it's actually a strategy to erode your your enemy down. And to an extent, maybe China is also doing the same by giving Russia false hope, letting it exhaust itself to become vulnerable. That's an interesting one. I hadn't really realized that. I mean, it's directly analogous to what the Americans did in the First World War. Let the Allies and the Germans and the, let them bleed each other white, and we can come in and di dictate the peace terms. Um, yeah, I mean that may well be true. Uh, I hadn't really thought about that. Uh, it's a good point. I mean, it's it's utterly immoral. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> possibly hey, yeah. not the only reason. You know, drip yes. feed, not having this sort of escalation uh, environment, especially against nuclear power, is perhaps also you know one of the the reasons. But you know, I. I but well, let's think about others. it. Let's let's sorry, sorry, but yeah. just let's think about it a little bit strategically. Why would it work? Well, it might work because it would force the Russians to conscript more people, and if you conscript more people, might there might be domestic interest. So there might be very strategic logic behind why you want to do that. Um, I, I don't know. Yeah, well, plenty of amorality in war, of course. Mm. <laughs> yeah, and so. the China angle is interesting because obviously I listen to a lot of. Um, not just Navalny's team, but other commentators now have a lot of channels. And some of them are quite seriously flagging up that uh, we know that, that Putin plays a long game. We also know China plays a long game. As an autocracy, it doesn't have to think in terms of electoral yeah. cycles. And, you know, China is on a process to reclaim its historic lands, as Russia is. And a big chunk of its historic lands are now Russian territory in Manchuria and the East. So I would disagree with that because there's this really fascinating thing that happened after the fall of the Soviet Union. Before the Soviet Union, China had these enormous territorial claims against the Soviet Union. And then, of course, the Soviet Union falls apart and you have these successor uh, states. Each of them is immeasurably weaker than the Soviet Union ever was. And you would think, as a realist like Mersheimer or Kissinger, you would say, like, ah, uh, China's position has improved, they will up their demands, but they didn't. They actually settled for less in many cases. So it seems to me that they're not so much want to in, in, in regain their territorial lands as reinstitute their kind of form of rule, the imperial rule with satraps and, and, and people who pay uh, tribute. And so like, um, it's more like they want to go back to the old system of the, of the Chinese empire, where you have um, you have some king of Laos, but you know he is the king of Laos, but he pays tribute to the emperor and stuff like that. So it's a more indirect rule. Uh, it's not. It's. I don't think they play the the Western game uh, game of territory and direct control like that. It's Which more is sort of economic. Uh, yeah, exactly. Client yeah. territories. Yeah. 
yeah, it means like you know, you had the center, and you know, and and, and power radiates from the center. You know, uh, uh, different di different model than we have, where you know, power is more decentralized. Another question that emerges from that then is cost, because of course we have a very different concept of cost and value, and especially the life of the individual in the yeah. West, um, not just the West, in many countries, uh, you know, Japan, etc. And it does seem that Ukraine really shares our values in that respect. You know, they, every individual is is mourned and, and treated in a highly individual way, whereas Russian treatment of its dead is, is downright callous, as many have seen. And, uh, you know, fairly collective in terms of the group memory of that. So that's not to say that individual families don't mourn as individuals. Of course, they do. But society and politically, they 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 treat life with a very different sort of set of values. Does that also change the calculus? Because if Putin does not have that same, uh, let's say, sort of value, or if he's not worrying about his human yeah. resources in the same way, uh, he perhaps thinks he can he can hold out, he can expend vast amounts of human and, and uh, economic capital you know when you when, when you approach this i immediately started thinking about this fantastic book that i recommend to everybody it's called ivan's war the, the life and death of uh of russian soldiers in the in the great patrick war 1939-1945 the description of how these soldiers fought under which circumstances i mean it rings true today um but your your analysis is dead on right yes it gives it gives the russians an advantage they can. They are willing to take costs that um, Ukraine and the West is not willing to take. They're willing to sacrifice thousands of people, and these people seem to be willing to do it. Also, I mean, well, there's more and more people now that have mentioned or wrote letters to Putin or recorded videos that there are you know, troops behind them to you know shoot them if they desert. But a very Stalinist practice in World War II, of course. But yeah, it gives it gives Putin an advantage. And I think this also leads to, if you have that sort of callous attitude to your own people, your own troops, and you see you know, many of them expendable, especially the sort of conscripted troops that have been labelled as Morbiki, um, you can't expect uh, a country like that to treat its enemies or prisoners with respect either, and we also see that. And one of the interesting things you, you, you flag up, I think, in one of your recent interviews is that not only was there a plan to take Kiev in 10 days, there is a far more sinister plan underlying that, that if they were victorious, they already had a list, a list of those who yeah. would need to be killed or eliminated or forced out of the country, uh, deported, repressed, shipped to other parts of Russia. But they also had a list of people who potentially could be coerced into being collaborators and those who they think would have been willing collaborators and you don't want to be on that list that is a that would be a horrible <laughs> character judgment yes but what do you know of these lists is that fairly typically more or is that pretty sinister in your mind it's deeply sinister i don't know many other cases i know i think that the russians did it in hungary and czechoslovakia and all and elsewhere uh yeah it's yeah uh, maybe maybe franco stroop did it in spain as well i don't really know the full details but yeah it's it gives sets chills down my spine. I mean, it's just, um, and it's also, by the way, striking, isn't it, Jonathan? I mean, the level of preparation, the, oh, this is guy is there and he lives there. I mean, we know his address and he goes at nine o'clock there. So you apprehend him there. Beautifully prepared, you know, and then the preparation of the armed forces where they set, you know, the, the, the trucks sit with three days in the, 
in the in the hot sun they don't rotate the tires so the tires explode so the whole offensive fails you know it, there's no maintenance i mean the, the the contrast between these two is so striking um yeah i mean i mean the level of brutality i mean it remind, reminds me of the movie of uh i'm sure you've seen it one of my favorite movies death of stalin the brutality between which between which they uh, with which they they're willing to eradicate anybody who is even a perceived opponent uh, it's it's yeah it, the, the level of ruthlessness i think that the west the people in the west the, the everyday citizens people in germany people in france and elsewhere who speak so gallantly and so hopefully of the russians should see this the poles don't need to hear this nor the estonians the Lithuanians, and lithuanians mm -hmm. but the people in the west don't understand that this is the standard operating procedure and you know and if russia goes further further they could very well be on that, one of those lists that's right. And that also plays into our idea of, of of how long something terrible like this should go on. And I know this from many, you know, many people uh, I talk to, work with, etc., family members. Um, they will they will ask, you know, how's it going? What's the news, etc., because they've actually unplugged because they they cannot f focus on it uh, and remain, uh, you know, calm and, and, and happy. They 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 do tune it out and. You know, I worry that that many people across Europe uh, and the US, I mean, those that aren't actively opposed to it, as you said earlier, for, for political reasons, uh, either extreme right or left, but those in the middle um, who are deeply concerned about Ukraine might nonetheless have, have switched off from it. This, this is a good point. And this is one of the reasons why I'm so gladly accepted your invitation. I mean, I think that if you, if you present a relatively simple overarching view of the logic of this war it can help people understand it and they don't tune out and, and, the, and the example i would give here is like um you start with uh, um, expectations of the war that don't align and you base your for uh, your war aims and your minimum demands on that and you end the war when your expectations align and your war aims come together and the process from one to the other is that you learn what happens during war so you have to look at 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 this war in Ukraine, and maybe not focus so much on the individual horrors and the individual battles, but look at the overall pattern. Is somebody learning something new? Is somebody's expectation are somebody's expectations wrong? I mean, what are the changes that we should track to see what's going on? Um, and it's not the day-to-day -day, uh, events; it's it's the, the the big changes that you know you see that Russia expected something, like say this offensive, and it failed. Uh, that should tell you something. That is, you know. Uh, uh, like everybody in the West is waiting on the offense of the Ukrainians. If that fails, that will tell us a lot. If it succeeds, maybe less so, because we expect it, right? Understand, this is important. It, if it succeeds, it doesn't mean necessarily the war is closer, because maybe everybody expects it. Only when your expectations are shown up to be wrong will you adjust. So we have to look at these broad patterns of what's happening in this war and say, like, oops, here are the big, big things that stand out. And then, um, and then we won't be tortured by the everyday events of the of the war as much i would hope and i think that's very important and this is the, again what I, I was really interested to speak to you is to is, is to help educate people and myself as well about the idea that this could almost unimaginably go on for potentially a couple of years not the sort yes. of couple of months of of slog um and yet going back to your first world war analogy and this might have to be the the, the last the, the the last question but i think it's a really pertinent place to sort of land on and, and that is um that it, 
almost everybody was saying that the result was inevitable, you know, a couple of months in uh, when Russia had to withdraw from from uh, the Kiev region. And then you have the Kharkiv Oblast and then Kherson. And it's almost as if the writing is kind of on the table now for Crimea. It's going to be a terrible slog and it might require a lot more equipment, combined arms, planes, etc. But it does seem now likely that Ukraine would be victorious. And yet... There is no prospect of Russia being conquered and decolonized, de-imperialized, uh, rolling back the brainwashing as happened in Japan and Germany. And even then it took a couple of generations yeah, to yeah. happen there. There's no prospect of occupying Russia in that sense. So even if Ukraine is, is uh, victorious, what is the difference then between a sustainable peace and a kind of malign resentful toxic piece which seems to be the best case scenario um probably not much <laughs> i'm sorry to say probably not much it could be yeah could well be that we lived there for a long time it may require fundamental change in russian society um, you know it happened after yeah so this is interesting after the first world war you know this was the old regime and they were overthrown and then there were massive efforts by uh, historians german and uh, American to you know keep this old notion of the victorious empire alive, and this is partially what, of course, led to the rise of Hitler. The stab in the back. It was like, no, it was not the old elite's fault, even though they knew in 1914 they couldn't win. No, it was not, not our fault. It was the fault of the people. Now, uh, you can expect something like that to happen again in Russia, and it will be scary. You know, this revanchism and this revenge notions—they're already there. I mean, are they going to be even even louder? The calls. Uh, it's yeah. It's a dangerous place. And reparations. I mean, we uh, reparations are not going to be imposed on Russia in that it's unwilling to pay, but sanctions are a form of reparation or the uh, the sort of tax or levy that's being placed on fossil fuels is a yeah. form of enforced reparation. That, that again, will, will breed resentment, even though yeah. it's morally the correct thing to do. I agree. Well, that's a really interesting perspective. I mean, what I'd love to do is speak to you again as things unfold uh, and, and and really try to help understand and put this war into a you know more historical context. Um, but really grateful that you had spent the time talking today. And I know the audience are going to you know really engage uh, strongly with uh, with this content. I very much appreciate it. You raised some interesting perspectives. It was yeah, it was a real delight. Uh, so I'm very grateful. <laughs>